everyone. My name is Mike Knox. And I am Matthew Kane. Welcome back to the Practicology Podcast, where we are bridging the gap between the scriptures and everyday life. Thanks so much for joining us. Today, I would like to speak with you about true, sincere, genuine, real deal righteousness. Our Lord Jesus said in Matthew 5, 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. And Matthew 5, 20, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, I am happy to hear you clarify from the top that that is our subject today, Matthew, because your title you have chosen for today's episode, Better Than the Dollar Store, might have left our listeners wondering if you had a problem with shopping at the dollar store. In fact, I myself am wondering, Matthew, do you object to my wanting to save money by shopping at the dollar store? I have no objection to it at all. In fact, I'm a fan of Dollarama, great place to get much less expensive greeting cards, although I... When I'm getting my wife's anniversary card, I don't go to Dollarama, but uh, great option for greeting cards, great option for some like some basic kitchen supplies, great place for buying notebooks. No shame in shopping at dollar stores, but I have learned there are also some things that aren't particularly wise to purchase from Dollarama or for our US listeners, the Dollar Tree, at least not if you want them to work very well for a long time. I once had a, a level, like a, a carpenter's level from the dollar store. And it wasn't level, not reliable. Water guns, I love good water guns. Dollarama doesn't give me really good water guns. They leak quickly. Uh, Combs for men's hair. You might not have hair a lot longer if you use the dollar store combs, I've learned. So uh, the issue, of course, in all of these is one of quality. A casual observer may look at the appearance of the dollar store item and think it looks legit and good. But someone who knows the inner components, who knows what has gone into the dollar store brand versus the superior brand. They know that if you get this at another store, it's going to be of greater quality. And I think the dollar store knows that too, Matthew, right? I mean, that's their business model. They are making a cheaper product, but it doesn't cost as much. And they are selling huge quantities. And it seems to be a pretty smart business model. It is a smart business model. Mass quantities of goods are sold at Dollarama, over $4 billion worth in 2020. So mass quantities, but the quality is sometimes lacking. And now I think I know where you're going with this title and your text in Matthew 5. You're pretty quick, Mike. I thought you'd pick up on it. My point is that just as the dollar store produces mass quantities, but the quality is lacking, So while the Pharisees that the Lord spoke of in Matthew 5 had an appearance of mass quantities of righteousness, the Lord's concern was that the quality was lacking. It was actually a pseudo-righteousness, a cheap imitation. But what the Father is seeking and what the Spirit of God is able to produce in His people is a better than the dollar store righteousness. And I'm thinking, Matthew, that the Lord's words in Matthew 5.20 that you quoted unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. I'm guessing that might have initially shocked his disciples a little bit. Many of us are now used to to connecting the Pharisees to hypocrisy and self-righteousness because we've maybe heard so much preaching on it. But in Jesus' day, that probably took many people aback. Yeah. And if there were any Pharisees listening at this point, I'm sure it took them aback because in many people's thinking, particularly the Pharisees themselves, The Pharisees were the models of righteousness, but the Lord's piercing gaze looked into their hearts. And in the eyes of many, the Pharisees exhibited 
commitment to the law, holy attention to detail, and perform many religious works. So to say your righteousness has to exceed their righteousness to enter the kingdom, will anyone enter the kingdom? And your point is that yes, some will, but it won't be the Pharisees in their self-righteousness, right? Correct. It will be people whose righteous actions stem from a heart righteousness, a deeper work of God in the inner man. When the Lord speaks of a righteousness exceeding the Pharisees, he's not emphasizing how many prayers or how beautiful the robes or how far away from sinners you stood. He's talking about a genuine spirituality, a life of love, a righteousness modeled after Christ himself. Well, that does sound like a righteousness far superior to the dollar store variety, Matthew. And I expect you are now going to highlight some specific areas of teaching to see this put into practice in our lives. Because the Lord does do just that here in the Sermon on the Mount, doesn't he? Yeah, the Sermon on the Mount is giving us kingdom principles. It is like a law for the kingdom of heaven. Now, it's not a system of law like Moses gave Israel in the Old Covenant, but these are standards of the king. The legislation of the kingdom is put forward, and it is the standard of perfect righteousness, principles for living as citizens of God's kingdom. And if you are born again, you're a true child of God, then you are a citizen of the kingdom. So to give us some focus areas for the remainder of our episode today, we're going to take our cues from the context and the areas of life the Lord highlights. Number one, true righteousness is seen by seeking right interpersonal relationships. Verses 21 to 26, true righteousness is seen by seeking right interpersonal relationships. So the Lord says at verse 21, you have heard that it was said, you shall not murder. But I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother, who's ever angry without cause will be liable to judgment. And whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council and so on. Then he gives that example. If you know your brother or sister has something against you, go and make it right before you go to worship God. And that last statement is somewhat astonishing. God is saying he doesn't want my worship if I have not tried to make things right with my brother. Wow, that is such a powerful reminder of how much God values right relationships among his people. Scripture obviously places a huge emphasis on love for one another. And now the Lord is saying that a heartfelt concern for righteousness means a heartfelt effort to be on good terms with my brothers and sisters, my fellow citizens of the kingdom. But I'm also thinking, Matthew, that being on good terms isn't always easy. And sometimes we will encounter people who are not ready to reconcile. You are right. And we've talked about forgiveness and reconciliation before, back in episode seven and eight, I think. But the scripture that comes to mind right now is Romans 12, 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So that scripture is recognizing we, we can't guarantee reconciliation. You're right. You've mentioned that. Uh, but I can repent where I have done something wrong. I can pray and I can try to initiate a resolution. But relationships are complicated sometimes. I, I know that. And we all are dealing with that likely in various times in our lives. What I'd like us to see today is a hungering and thirsting after righteousness, Matthew 5, 6, that includes valuing my relationships with my brothers and sisters, respecting them and viewing them as Christ views them. Right. And the Pharisees in their self-righteousness and self-exaltation, 
seemed quite content to trample over others. I think they did. And then the immediate setting here in Matthew 5, I think the Lord's saying the pharisaical attitude was, well, I haven't murdered anyone. You can't accuse me of breaking the law. I've never killed any of my brothers and sisters. I mean, some of them may be a bunch of no good, lazy, foolish numbskulls. And I've told them that because they deserve at times to get beat over the head with a sledgehammer, but I didn't do it. I've kept the law. I didn't murder. I haven't sinned. Well, the Lord is saying that's that's dollar store righteousness because the problem of sin is already there in the heart. The careless anger, the critical spirit in the heart is the spring from which the outward act of murder flows. It's on the same, maybe at a different point on the spectrum, but it's on the same spectrum. Now, I know there is such a thing as righteous anger. There's legitimate things to be angry about. Too often, though, man's anger is blended with a passion that is out of control. And what I've learned, admittedly sometimes from painful experience, what I've learned about outbursts of anger, I think is best encapsulated in those weighty words of James 1.20. So much of James is linking with the Sermon on the Mount as well. But James 1.20 says, the anger, the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Our outbursts of anger, whether it's towards our children or just people in the world around us or our Christian brothers and sisters, it will generally make them upset, cause some tension but it won't change their heart. And if we've had one of those outbursts of anger, if we've spoken an unkind word to someone and that's created some friction, or maybe if we've posted something on social media that has created tension and needless angst in the minds of others, then we need to repent. The Lord wants us to deal with the friction and be reconciled. No, we're not going to be able to perfectly fix every one of our human relationships at times, but genuine heart righteousness takes interpersonal relationships seriously. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Good points, Matthew. The sixth commandment in the Decalogue said, you shall not murder. And now it seems that the Lord moves on in his teaching to the seventh commandment in the Decalogue. So the Lord says at verse 27, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. That was the seventh commandment. But now the Lord says, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and throw it away. And then he says, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and so on. Matthew, when we come back to the beginning of my reading there, to lust is to commit adultery in the heart. I see what you're saying. The Lord is really raising the bar on the standard of righteousness. Yeah, verses 27 to 32, righteousness in our sexual purity. While a commandment said don't commit adultery, the Lord is bringing out the matter of the heart that lay beneath it because he's looking for more than dollar store righteousness in his people. His point, by the way, is not to equate physical adultery with adultery in the heart. They are not the same. Generally speaking, the consequences of one will be greater than the other. But his point is to get to the root of the matter so that we will pursue righteousness from the heart because sinful actions begin in the heart. Sexual sins that sometimes lead to the breakdown of marriages begin with lust in the heart. It's nurtured and fed and coddled and excused. I'm not going to expound on verses 31, 32 today, but let me just point out two things. Number one, the text is teaching 
that a sexual union is sacred. Hebrews 13, let marriage be held in honor, let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. The sexual union is sacred. It is more than an act just to give you physical pleasure. Secondly, divorce is painful, and it's painful for more than just the husband and wife. And I just want to encourage you today, uh, don't entertain thoughts of the possibility of divorce down the road. Don't say something in your head like, boy, once once the kids are raised and off to school, then I, I think I'm done with this probably. Don't, don't let those thoughts occupy brain space. Do something to work on your marriage now. That's going to take some time and effort and self-sacrifice, maybe some money. Maybe you need some help on that. That's okay. Marriage is worth saving. A good marriage is a wonderful thing. But sometimes a marriage is on rocky ground because one or both partners are not pursuing righteousness from the heart. I need to remember that my wife must own all of my romantic affections. She is the only woman I have freedom to pursue. And when I lust after another woman, I'm being disloyal to my wife and my heart. Faithfulness to my wedding vows includes my thought life. Even if I haven't committed the act, if I am lusting after someone else, my embrace of my wife will not be as warm and meaningful as it should be. My emotional attachment will not be as deep and as pure. So the Lord is concerned with real heartfelt righteousness in our marriages. Not only would it be an act of unrighteousness against my wife, but it would be an act of unrighteousness against the woman I would be lusting after. I'm sinning against her in my heart because I'm not treating her with the respect she deserves. Isn't our Lord Jesus good to remember in this context? He spent time in the company of women. He wasn't ashamed to be followed by Mary Magdalene. He allowed a woman who was a sinner to anoint his feet. He treated them all with respect, not as objects to lust after. Jen Wilkins says, if the sixth commandment, so the sixth commandment is do not murder, the seventh is do not commit adultery. If the sixth commandment prohibited regarding our neighbor as expendable, the seventh commandment prohibits regarding our neighbor as consumable. Treat older women as mothers and younger women as sisters in all purity, 1 Timothy 5.2. Now, I know this can be an area of real, genuine, difficult, dangerous struggle. Let me let me make a couple more points to close off this section. The Lord appeals to us to take an ultra-serious approach to this sin, verses 29-30. It's what's needed often. He's not actually telling you to pluck your eye out or cut your hand off. That doesn't fix the issue in the heart. What he's saying is don't treat it lightly. Don't excuse it. Don't play games with it. On the contrary, kill it. A word to parents such as ourselves. Um, you know, remember people my age, like we didn't get internet in our home until, in my case, I think until my first year of university. And that was just dial up speed. Do you remember those days, Mike? Oh yeah, for sure. Uh, I think we started with 16.4 kilobytes per second. It made that crazy connecting sound, bing, 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 bzzz, and you hope you connect. Now I'm working at like 218 megabytes per second. My point is when, when the internet arrived in the end of my teen years, there was no point in trying to download graphics. It's a different age now. It's been that way for a while. Uh, we're raising kids approaching teen years, many of you who are listening. 
web filters or internet accountability software, I'm going to suggest that should just be a given in your home, automatic, not something that even needs to be wondered about. This, this is just a good safety tool. And I know they cost money, but we're talking about preserving lives. No, it doesn't cure the heart, but it can help prevent the feeding of lust. There's lots of options out there. You can do your own research. Covenant Eyes is a, is a common one. Uh, a newer program, Canopy, is said to have a better algorithm now in picking up wrong graphics. There's a couple things you can research. But this is just a way, it, it's sort of like cutting off the hand or plucking out the eye. So we need to take a serious approach to this sin. Secondly, we need to rejoice in the gospel grace of our Lord Jesus. Sometimes uh, we can get a real glimpse of the evil that lies within our hearts. And we're like Peter, depart from me for I am a sinful man, O Lord. And the Lord responds like this to people who sense their own sin. This is what he said to Peter, follow me. Sam Albury says, if our awareness of indwelling sin humbles us and makes our sovereign Christ more precious to us, then we are safe. Remember and cherish and praise the Lord that Jesus Christ took all of our lustful thoughts in his own body on the tree. And he paid, he satisfied God for our dishonesties, for our unrighteous anger and for our lusts. He draws alongside us in our weakness, not to excuse our sin, but to strengthen us in our fight against sin. John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, he says, when Jesus' strength meets our weakness, the result is not that we weaken him, but that he strengthens us. So seek fellowship with the Lord Jesus that will strengthen you in your hunger and thirst after genuine heartfelt better than the dollar store quality righteousness. Thank you, Matthew. Those are some uh, really important and helpful words. So if I can just recap what you've covered so far, verses 21 to 26, the Lord talked about righteousness in our interpersonal relationships. And then verses 27 to 32, righteousness in our sexual purity. And now it looks like there's another lesson beginning at verse 33. And to help us see that he is about to touch on a different subject, the Lord uses that same phraseology again as he prepares to broach into another topic. You have heard that it was said, but I say unto you. Matthew, it appeals to me that the Lord is speaking very authoritatively when he talks that way. He doesn't merely say, thus says the Lord, like an Old Testament prophet would say, but he says, I say unto you. He is the Lord and he speaks with ultimate authority. Yeah. And that's how the Sermon on the Mount concludes. The multitude is astonished at his teaching because he taught them with authority and not as their scribes. He's the king and he's the lawgiver. And with that repeated refrain, you have heard that it was said, but I say unto you, of course, he's not denigrating the law and he's not correcting the Old Testament law. He didn't have a problem with the law, but what the Pharisees did with the law the Pharisees tried to find ways around the law. They, they made up rules that they could keep, but they missed the spirit of the law. Their righteousness was of inferior quality because while some of them may not have committed the acts, they were overlooking the issues of the heart. Now, he uses that phrase three more times in the chapter. We're just going to take a minute to touch on one more of them. The next one, verses 33 to 37. True righteousness means honesty in our words. Okay, so let me read that quickly. It says, again, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, that what you say be simply yes or no. 
Yeah, people should be able to trust our words. Now, the Lord isn't talking about courtrooms here, by the way, and whether you should swear on the Bible or not. He's talking about your everyday speech. I shouldn't be someone who's trying to hide the truth or be deceptive or always exaggerating when describing something that happened or how someone reacted. I shouldn't be giving people wrong impressions. God values honesty. This is part of walking in the light, being transparent, first with the Lord and also with my brothers and sisters. It's being honest. People should be able to trust my words. Well, those are true words, Matthew. Righteousness means honesty. And when you say that God values honesty, uh, we could think of the experience of the Apostle Paul. Back when he was Saul in his unsaved days, he was a self-righteous Pharisee and put his confidence in his own, his own dollar store kind of righteousness. But then he became honest with God, didn't he? And he realized he was a sinner that needed a savior. And he describes that transformation so beautifully in Philippians 3. I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Yeah, I love that passage, especially as he continues, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So as I'm talking about a true heartfelt righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees, let me be clear, that starts with the work of God in our hearts when he gives us righteousness. He gives us a righteous standing. That's justification. We are declared righteous in Christ. We're made right with God through Christ. And because of that work in our hearts, there is then the divine power within us to hunger and thirst after righteousness, to produce a better quality righteousness, something that the self-righteous Pharisee could never know apart from the power of God's spirit. I mean, this is Romans 14 also, right? Romans 14 tells us the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but righteousness peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And we are citizens of the kingdom, beloved. So with the power of God's spirit, let's pursue that true, heartfelt, genuine righteousness that our Lord Jesus was filled with himself. Amen. Paul tells us in the pastoral letters to pursue, to run after righteousness. Jesus, as you said, Matthew, he warns us, unless our righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, we will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That's the dollar store variety of righteousness. But we have been given by imputation the perfect righteousness of God. And that does indeed create a hunger within us to grow and make progress in developing a practical, from the heart, righteous living that pleases our Lord. Thanks everyone for joining us. Thank you, Matthew, for bringing these thoughts before us and help us all to go in for this, this race in pursuit of righteous living. Have a great day, everyone.